Hello, my friends. I am back, and welcome to Episode 8 of You Don't Know Jack. I'm your host, Sarah Dimio, and this podcast is your one-stop shop with everything you need to know in the career of the legend Jack Nicholson. So if you've been following along each week, you know that I was unable to get this episode out last week as originally intended. I apologize for the wait and for the duration of this podcast. That will not happen again. We're just starting to get rolling with Jack's career. So the way I see it, this is no time to be breaking the momentum. And while we're on the subject of momentum, let me just take this opportunity to talk up the production company that I am so proud to be a part of. At the end of every episode, you've probably heard me tell you to visit clovercrestmedia.com. I myself first became involved with Clovercrest Media Group when I was hosting my true crime podcast called Faded Out, which, by the way, if you're a true crime fan and you're interested in missing persons cold cases, you can still find it across all podcast apps. But since then, Clovercrest has grown. Currently, I believe they have 26 original podcasts, and it all started not even two years ago. There's true crime, there's sports, there's politics, there's music, there's me talking about Jack Nicholson movies, and there's so many more different things. So not only do I think you should check out the website to find these new podcasts for yourself, but drop in on social media, Facebook, Instagram. We're all on there too. Discover one of these hidden gems for yourself. Pass it on to your friends who listen to podcasts. But I'll leave it at that for now because you didn't tune in today to listen to me shamelessly plug myself or my podcast's production company, especially when I've kept you waiting. So let's do it. Last week, we talked about Jack's work from 1967 but like I said at the end of that episode, there's one more film from that year that Jack worked on, but I wanted to hold off on talking about it. And that is The Trip, which Jack wrote the screenplay for. I started talking last week about counterculture. Let's get back into that headspace. It's the late 60s. We're going through the civil rights movement, the women's liberation movement, the Vietnam War is happening. Tensions are rising, and with that, lifestyles are changing. There's a pushback against the traditional ways of doing things. People are turning away from the idea of the nuclear family of the 1950s. So now we have experimentation with drugs, psychedelic drugs. But it becomes more than just experimentation. It's a lifestyle all its own. And all of these things, these changes in culture and lifestyle, are making their way into pop culture, in art, music, literature, and film. The Trip was produced and directed by Roger Corman. The first two drafts of the script were written by Charles B. Griffith, who wrote the script for Corman's Little Shop of Horrors in 1960. The first draft was about the social issues taking place in the 1960s, and apparently the second draft was an opera. Now, I don't have any 
details on what was involved in that, whether it was a rock opera or how far along he got into that draft. But it was after that draft that Corman hired Jack to write what would be the screenplay for the trip. Now, you can probably deduce what the title The Trip is referring to. It's quite literally about an LSD trip. I read that Roger Corman did research by taking LSD himself. The artist in me applauds him for this because it's so important for the filmmaker to know the subject matter that they're telling the story on. But then the realist in me thinks about how this was 1967, Hollywood, and thinks, yeah, okay, just research for a project, air quotes. But of course, I say that tongue-in-cheek, and quick story, in summer of 2006, I attended the New York Film Academy in Manhattan. You can imagine I was very young and fresh-faced, just shy of turning 22, big dreams of being a famous award-winning filmmaker, blah, blah, you know. So each week we had to write, direct, shoot, and edit our own little two to four minute films. And without ever seeing or ever hearing of Roger Corman's The Trip, I'm sure I did at least see the title before since Jack is involved with it, but I never knew what it was about. So without ever seeing it or knowing it, I decided on my last week that I wanted to make a film about an acid trip. The title that I managed to come up with was The Head Trip. What actually inspired me was the song White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane, and I did use that song as the soundtrack of my little short film. Now, I had never done a drug in my life. I didn't even know what acid looks like or how one goes about carrying it on their person. I got these three actresses that I met from the school to be in the film, and I think I bought a pack of sweet tarts or something like that and had one of the actresses pull one out of her purse to give to my lead actress. It wasn't terrible. You can tell very much that a young student made it, though. My point being, I absolutely did not try acid in order to research the subject matter. And, well, maybe that's one of the reasons why Roger Corman is a successful and highly praised filmmaker with 60 years of work under his belt, and I am not. So, I first saw the trip a few months ago, shortly after I decided that I would be doing this podcast. And I watched it a second time two weeks ago. The film stars Peter Fonda as Paul Groves, a TV commercial director. Paul's wife, Sally, is played by Susan Strasberg, who is actually the daughter of theater director and drama teacher Lee Strasberg, known for teaching the technique known as method acting. So the movie opens up on a beach. A young, attractive couple is standing together at the ocean, they're shooting a commercial for a new cologne. Paul calls for them to cut, and as everyone goes to break, Sally comes over onto the set. Paul was supposed to meet her at the lawyer's office, but he never showed. She's upset because she waited over two hours. 
Paul and Sally are going through a divorce, and it's clear from early on that Paul is having trouble dealing with it. But he promises he'll meet her there the next day. After the crew finishes for the day, Paul heads over to a big house overlooking the ocean, where there's this group hanging out. In that group is Dennis Hopper, who plays Max, who, might I add, will play Peter Fonda's writing buddy in Easy Rider in just two years, which we'll be talking about in just a few episodes. They sit, they all pass a joint around. Also there is John, played by Bruce Dern, who we've seen so far in one of our past films, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and who I'll be bringing up again in the second film that I review for you today. Paul has come for the purpose of taking LSD for the first time. And John is there as his guide during the trip. John has Paul come upstairs and they're alone in this big room. There's these sofas with velvet cushions. There's a balcony with a hot tub. Every comfort is there. It's all very planned out. This is not a reckless thing. John tells Paul to clear his mind of everything. And one thing that is very important, Paul must have complete trust in John. John gets the tablet ready, and he asks Paul if he wants to take it with apple juice or water. Paul chooses the apple juice because he claims he's starving. And John tells him that feeling will go away. And John also has, if needed, Thorazine, which is an antipsychotic medication, which if Paul experiences a bad trip, he can take the Thorazine and it'll snap him out of it. So Paul takes the LSD with the apple juice, somewhat awkwardly, not knowing what to expect once he swallows it. Once it does start to kick in, he starts to feel so good, euphoric, it seems like. He's got this big, blissful smile on his face as he's describing to John just how beautiful everything is. Bliss is the only word I can think of to accurately describe the look that he's giving off. John, of course, is sitting there with all his wits about him, observing everything that Paul does. At one point, Paul picks up an orange from a fruit bowl, and he says something like, isn't it beautiful? And John says, what? And Paul says, life, while he's fawning over this little orange. And Bruce Dern's character, John, he's taking his role as Paul's guide very seriously. He's all business. He's dressed nicely. He has a turtleneck and a blazer on. He almost, to me, had the look of a psychiatrist or just someone very professional. But this trip takes some turns. Paul begins to have visions of being chased by hooded figures on these black horses. And multiple times we see him running, and I mean running for his life, across a beach. I did read that some of these visions were meant as kind of an homage to Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal, where a knight plays chess on a beach with death I was impressed by the imagery, and I liked the different visions being spliced together. That, I thought, gave a good representation of a mind racing and outside of its control. The issue that I had with the trip was that 
there didn't seem to be much of a plot. There was really no story arc to it. Everything that happens once Paul takes that dose of LSD is the trip that ensues. We see images of his wife, Sally, and we see images that can be interpreted as loss or death. But for the viewer who is looking for a clear, concise rising action, climax, falling action, and resolution, I don't think you're going to find it here. I would say that it's very experimental. So if you are looking for something that is very abstract and open to interpretation, then I do think you may be impressed. I wish I could remember where exactly it was, but I remember just within the last year, I think, seeing an event posted for, I believe, I could be mistaken, but I believe that it was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York for a screening of the trip because it has been regarded over time as an art film. The budget for the trip was $100,000, and it was released on August 31st, 1967, right at the Summer of Love. And according to Roger Corman, the film took in $6 million in rentals. So whatever your thoughts might be in viewing the trip, especially now in the year 2020, you really can't deny that it stands at a pivotal place in time, just within the history of cinema. I really don't expect that an audience now would have the same kind of visceral reaction that, say, an audience in the summer of 67 would have. So I guess I would have to say that this is another one that is frozen in time. You know, just like I said with Crybaby Killer in 1958 on our first episode, the trip is frozen in time as a glimpse into that LSD lifestyle that was becoming such a big part of life in the late 60s. And that was why I wanted to pair the trip with the other movie that I'll be talking about today. And that is 1968's Psych Out. But before we dive in, let's see where we are in what's going on with Jack at this point in time. I think you could say that the reception of the trip was Jack's first real taste of success. 1967 was another busy year. He had two appearances on The Andy Griffith Show, a bit part in Roger Corman's St. Valentine's Day Massacre, a leading role in Hell's Angels on Wheels, and he wrote the screenplay for the trip. Now, I think I mentioned in my last episode that by this point, he and his wife, actress Sandra Knight, were separated, and they would ultimately divorce in 1968. But before that would happen, Jack would have another lead role in Psych Out. Psych Out and The Trip, I've noticed, are often shown together. I read that a DVD was released in 2003 with The Trip on one side and Psych Out on the B side, and rightly so because we're moving right along. It's the late 60s. We're still talking drugs, anti-establishment, down with the man, down with society. This is one that features a lot of people that Jack has worked with previously. 
starring Susan Strasberg as Jenny. You remember Susan Strasberg just played Sally in The Trip. Jack plays Stoney. Okay. Definitely a hippie. He's even got the long hair pulled back into a low ponytail. Also, Adam Rourke as Ben. We saw Adam Rourke in a starring role in Hell's Angels on Wheels, where he played Buddy, the leader of the Hell's Angels. Bruce Dern as Steve, but Steve is also known as The Seeker. And we also have Max Julian as Elwood, Henry Jaglum as Warren, and Dean Stockwell as Dave. Directed by Richard Rush, who directed Too Soon to Love and Hell's Angels on Wheels. Produced by Dick Clark. Yes, that Dick Clark. Also produced by Norman T. Herman. Screenplay by E. Hunter Willett and Betty Ulias. The production company was Dick Clark Productions. Dick Clark Productions, of course, which brought us American Bandstand and is still going strong to this day, even eight years after Dick Clark has passed away. So the original title to Psych Out was The Love Children. But Dick Clark later said that the title was changed because the test audiences thought that it would be and I'm quoting, a film about bastards, end quote. So apparently one of the producers over at DCP came up with the new title after there was a successful re-release of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Get it? Psycho? Psych out? The film opens on Jenna played by Susan Strasberg, sitting on a bus looking downward. And then a hand comes into the frame through Jenny's window, and it's a hippie handing her a flower. Jenny has just arrived in San Francisco. She's a runaway, and she's deaf. But she's making this trip because she's looking for her brother, Steve, played by Bruce Dern. After she gets off the bus, we see a lot of various shots of San Francisco the hippie lifestyle, a lot of shots of bare feet, flower paintings, beads hanging from different storefronts. And Jenny is just kind of standing in the street, gazing around at the sight of all this. She doesn't notice the older couple in the car right behind her, honking at her, trying to get by. But when she does eventually turn around, She goes over to the man's window and says loudly to him, I'm deaf. Turns out she gets by by reading people's lips. Now we first see Stoney, Jack's character, at a coffee shop with Ben and Elwood. And as you can imagine, Stoney is kind of philosophizing to Ben. (laughs) Hey man, it's not money, it's life. It's human life. You don't invest it. You spend it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Don't take acid to see that. All you got to do is know where your head is at. That's very nice. Very intellectual. Very bright. Very nice. But it's crap. (laughs) It's crap. The three of them notice Jenny sitting by herself at this coffee shop. So they attempt to sit and talk with her. She's receptive. She's able to communicate with Ben. Stoney sits on the other side of her and attempts to talk to her, 
But because she's not looking at him at the time, she doesn't acknowledge him. So Stoney hides his lips with his hand and says to Ben and Elwood, I think she's deaf. They say back to him, no, you're crazy. Stoney, continuing to hide his lips, insists, yes, she's absolutely deaf. She reads lips. And eventually the three of them begin giggling. And Jenny picks up on this immediately and jumps up almost in tears, demanding, what are they laughing at? But Stoney then jumps up and stops her from leaving, and he apologizes. He didn't mean to hurt anybody. So Jenny sits back down and says she'd like another cup of coffee. So Stoney offers to go get it for her. And while he goes over to the counter, he sees a pair of cops flashing Jenny's picture around, saying that she's a runaway. So Stoney makes his way back over to the table, and he mouths to Jenny, Cops are looking for you. So to sneak her out of the coffee shop, the three guys create a diversion and Stoney and Ben pretend to get into a fight right in front of these cops. They do this long enough so that Jenny can get outside and be on her way. Stoney, Elwood, and Ben are in a band and the band is called Mumblin' Jim. They drive in this Volkswagen microbus, which I love, and I want to own one someday. And they're driving around, they're passing a joint around, and they come up on this house, and they see Jenny, and she's talking to the woman who owns the house. Jenny came to the house in the hopes of finding Steve, but the woman tells her that he just took off one day without even paying his rent. So Stoney, Elwood, and Ben decide they want to help Jenny. She shows them a postcard that Steve sent to her, and it reads, Jess Sayes. That's Jess, as in J-E-S-S, Sayes, S-A-E-S. God is alive and well and lives in a sugar cube. But before they look any further, they take Jenny to a store to get her some new clothes. So she blends in a little bit better. And she needs a place to stay. So they take her back to Stoney's place so she has a place to sleep. Now, Warren, played by Henry Jaglum, is an artist with a gallery who designs posters for the band. The next day, Warren starts having a bad trip on some STP. STP is a street name which stands for Serenity, Tranquility, and Peace. Stoney, Elwood, and Ben rush over to the gallery to help him, And they manage to stop him from cutting his own hand off with a circular saw. Jenny is also there and she notices a sculpture at the gallery and she recognizes it as her brother Steve's work. They find out that Steve is known as the Seeker and he's known as a street preacher. A former band member, Dave, played by Dean Stockwell, knows of the Seeker and might know where they can find him. So that ends up bringing them to a junkyard. But when they arrive in this junkyard, they find a sign that reads, Jesus saves, with the U and the V missing. Jess says. So now they know they're getting close. As they keep looking, they find a burnt out car. And Jenny recognizes it as Steve's car. But there's no one inside. But then there's this gang of thugs just kind of hanging out at the junkyard, three of them in total. Stoney tells them 
they're looking for the seeker. And the gang just laughs at them, of course. But they've got a beef with the seeker. They don't like his lifestyle or his preaching of love and peace and all that stuff. So one of these guys takes a look at Jenny and he grabs her like he's going to rape her and this huge fight ensues. But the good guys, the peace and love crowd, they win the fight, having just gotten away with their lives, that is. And that's all because Elwood is hanging back because he is super high after having taken something in the bus earlier. And he picks up this large beam and knocks out the guys in the gang. That night, Mumblin' Jim has a show at this little venue to an audience of hippies dancing. There's all kinds of projections and lights going on at the show. And Jenny is there. She can't hear the music, but she can feel the beat. And the whole time, her eyes are just on Stoney as he's playing the guitar. Back at Stoney's place, Stoney and Jenny are lying in Stoney's bed. They haven't done anything. They're just laying there. And he says to her, I wish you could have heard the music. And they lean in and they kiss. Jenny is very much developing feelings for Stoney. But what she doesn't see is that he's with a lot of girls. He is not the committing type. And if anything, Stoney seems to ignore her more and more. As the band is having practice in an already noisy house, Jenny interrupts them by telling Stoney that she's going to take a walk. And Stoney yells back at her to go ahead and take one. He doesn't have a leash on her. So she runs out of the house, upset. Later on, Stoney starts feeling bad, so he goes out and tries to find her. He goes over towards the gallery, and he hears glass break, so he goes inside. Steve, the seeker, played by Bruce Dern, is there, and he's come back to get his sculpture. He's dressed in all white. He's got long, messy hair. And calmly, Stoney explains to the seeker that his sister is there and that she's been trying to find him. And the seeker, well, he seems a little taken aback by this. He remembers Jenny as the sweetest little kid. And he wants to see her, but he says he can't do it now because he's high at the moment. So he needs a day to clear his head. Then he'll come to her. But unfortunately... Between the time that Stoney finds the Seeker and the next night, a series of events happen that cause everything to take kind of a tragic turn. It's surprising, and you might even find yourself yelling at the screen, Damn it! Of the two movies, I have to say I really favor Psych Out. Because not only is there more of a story, it's actually a pretty complex story. But aside from that, I think the main difference between The Trip and Psych Out is that The Trip is a glimpse into one man's trip, his first time taking LSD. Psych Out 
is a tale of relationships and events happening with a large cast of characters, with the psychedelic drug lifestyle as the backdrop to that tale. So that being said, there's certainly much more of a plot to psych out, and because there was so much going on, I felt like the drugs weren't the only things that were happening. There were actual characters with depth and with struggles that they were going through, things that I could relate to. Dick Clark had said later on that he wanted the film to have an anti-drug message, and the reason he explained was that he had seen the way a lot of young people were living, who were dabbling into those different kinds of psychedelics, and a lot of them were living in squalor. So he didn't want to encourage that. And I think that that's why the story takes a more tragic turn in the third act. I think similarly to the trip, Psych Out stands frozen in time as I would think, I guess I don't know as I wasn't alive yet, but I think it stands out as a good representation of the late 60s counterculture era that I've been talking about. But I want you to decide for yourself how you feel about these types of films. The Trip is available on Amazon Prime Video as well as Blu-ray. You can also find it in full on YouTube. The same goes for Psych Out. You can find it in full on YouTube. And I was able to find it available for rent on demand on my TV. So you'll likely be able to find it there too, depending on your cable provider. Next week, we are still in 1968, man. We'll be talking about a film that Jack made with the monkeys. Oh, yes, the monkeys. And that movie is called Head. And not to mention, it would be Jack's first time working with director Bob Rafelson, who would go on to direct some classics that Jack would star in. So until then, please, if you liked what you heard today, leave me a review. Give a nice rating. Help other Jack fanatics like you and I find this podcast. Don't forget, you can find You Don't Know Jack wherever you download your podcasts. You Don't Know Jack is a production, like I said, of Clovercrest Media Group. And I don't have to tell you, visit clovercrestmedia.com to find other great original podcasts. Be on the lookout for my new blog entry, which will come out the day after this episode is released. So until next week, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.